Hello, welcome to a special weekend episode of The Briefing and welcome to the weekend, Jamila Rizvi. I've never been here on the weekend. I can't <laughs> believe I haven't been invited before. Great to have you back in over the weekend. Um, you know, this is where we just relax and, you know, get deep and we're getting deep today with a full extended, uncut version of our Julia Gillard interview from Wednesday. That's right. I spend most of my Saturday mornings with Julia Gillard, actually. <laughs> but in in all truth, this interview was so much fun and so many zingers and bombs dropped by Gillard that we had to play the whole thing. We couldn't... We had too much good stuff. Yeah, so today you're going to hear the full, basically around half an hour. On Wednesday, we could only play half of it. Um, There's so much in there. We find out what she thinks about Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro and Brazil's handling of COVID-19. We also find out why she didn't address sexism directly until that big, famous misogyny speech. Yeah, I found that very interesting that she, you know, thinks about things a little bit differently. It's rare that you hear a politician be upfront about what they would have changed and maybe what they did wrong. Yeah, and there's that really nice moment where you bring up the time when you were working as a Labor advisor where she was really nice to you at a poignant moment. I also really enjoy the fact she clearly didn't remember that, (laughs) but she pretended to for my benefit. Yeah, definitely didn't remember. She had more going on than me sucking in the corridors. The other thing I really enjoyed chatting to her about was raising this idea that sometimes the worst proponents of sexism in your life are other women and I hate saying that out loud as a feminist but I think we all know that that can be true. Women can be sexist as well. Do you hesitate to say it because you feel like it lets men off the hook? No, I don't think it's about letting men off the hook. It feels like I'm being somehow disloyal to the sisterhood and I was really excited that I had Julia Gillard, the legit kind of person who's well read in this space, give me some data on why it's okay to say that. Because you actually feel that in your own life sometimes? Yeah, I do. And I think I am not alone in that. I speak a lot in this space about gender and sexism. And often I will have women come up to me later and say, I don't know exactly how to say this, but sometimes I feel like the person who's been worst to me at work or the person who's been most unfair to me in my life or the person who has been really sexist to me has been another woman. And what's with that? So we have a really great chat with Gillard about internalised misogyny, which is a really complex but fascinating topic. All right, well, let's jump into it. Here is the full chat with the former Prime Minister, Julie Gillard. Julie Gillard, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Thank you. Great to be with you. Julia, it's so nice to hear your voice again. I thought it was best to kick off by letting the audience know that you and I have spoken many times uh, to do interviews, but also I worked for your government in what feels like a very long time ago now. Well, it was a bit of a while ago, Jamila. Uh, We did just have the 10-year anniversary of me being sworn in as Prime Minister. So, yes, it is a while ago, but we've had the opportunity to talk since on many occasions, which has been fantastic, and I'm glad we're having another conversation now. Now, I want to take you back to that very strange period of almost two weeks in 2010 when we essentially had a tie in the Australian election and you were negotiating with the crossbench to be able to form government. And you may not remember this particular act of empathy, but I recall standing outside the Prime Minister's office waiting for a friend who worked for you, and I had my head in my hands, worried that my house full of staffers were about to be unable to pay their rent. 
and you came over and you <laughs> tapped me on the shoulder and you said, are you all right? And I should have said something rousing and instead I said, no, I'm really worried we're going to lose, which wasn't ideal. And uh, you said, oh, yeah, me too. I'm worried about that too. And you walked off. And I remember reflecting on so many occasions on the kindness of that moment, that it was a life-changing, nation-changing moment for you and you took the time to check on a 24-year-old who was sucking about a rent. And I wanted to ask whether you thought that in a world where 90% of countries and 90% of ASX 200 companies are run by men, are we lacking that kind of empathy from our leaders? Oh, Jamila, I kind of wish I'd said something to you more inspiring than me too. (laughs) I'm worried about it as well. Would have been nice if I'd given you a little pep talk instead of that. But I know what you mean about empathy. And I do think that in the age in which we live, people are increasingly looking for leadership, which is both strong and empathetic. And I think we're seeing that reflected by the fact that there's so much discussion now of how women are leading during this period of the pandemic and that many of the women who are leading are making sure that their nations stay as safe as possible during this troubled time whilst making feel people feel better about all of the restrictions and things that we need to go through. So I am hoping that over the medium term we come out of this with a new respect for leadership that can do both. Julia and Jamila, it was really interesting to hear that that story. Um, quite a quite a beautiful moment for both of you, and I love that both of you felt like you, you could have answered the question or the, or dealt with that issue differently at at the time. Um, but it, it does it does make a really poignant, um, I guess, connection, and and it makes me wonder as well about the difference between male and female leadership. And Julia Gillard, you've been making some interesting points about the sort of macho leaders like Donald Trump or um, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil or Boris Johnson, those men with that kind of um, traditional macho leadership style are really failing in the current pandemic. What What is it about the leadership style of those leaders and others like them that you, that you feel is so unsuited for these times? Basically, I just think you can't bluster in the face of a virus. You know, there might be many political issues that you can wangle your way through, not worrying whether what you're saying is factual or evidence-based or any expert is going to agree with you. Um, Indeed, during the Brexit campaign in the UK, there was a moment when, you know, it was politically kind of said, well, look, people are sick of listening to experts anyway. What are they know. And this is a time in which we've come to understand ever so clearly that expertise matters, competence matters, listening to good advice matters, and not pretending that you know it all. So, you know, I'm not someone who believes that men and women's brains are different. I'm not someone who believes, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And in the book on women and leadership that uh, I've got out now with my friend Ngozi, uh, we tackle all of that and say most of it's neurosexism, not neuroscience. 
But women and men are socialised differently and women are particularly socialised to show empathy, to put the team first. And yet we've seen these male leaders come forward winning through on a kind of devil-may-care kind of style, but it's run out of rope now during the days of the pandemic. It is failing and it's seen to be failing. What do you mean by blustering through and, and do you think that is more typically a male characteristic? Oh, look, not in the sense that uh, disproportionately, um, you know, men are hardwired for it. I don't mean that. But I do mean that there's a leadership style where uh, we have extended to some leaders the ability to just, you know, pretend the truth isn't the truth. I'm thinking of here of things like Donald Trump's claims about how many people went to his inauguration. You know, you can work that out. There are photographs all the rest of it, which absolutely show how many people were there and it wasn't the grand number that he claimed. Now, he can bluster his way through that and people ultimately get sick of talking about it and move on. But you can't bring that style to something like a virus where you just pretend, oh, it's just a little bit of a cold or a drug's going to work when the evidence shows that drug isn't going to work. So bringing those same tendencies hasn't seen his nation through during this time. Now, what's all of that got to do with gender? Well, in the book, we do talk about, you know, socialisation. We do talk about uh, male and female leadership styles, but we talk particularly about how people see men and women as leaders and the fact that gender stereotypes whisper in all of our brains. And I think that there is evidence to show that we are less forgiving of errors in female leaders. So we don't uh, let them do quite the degree of bluster that men can get away with. Julia, in the book, which you've co-authored with your friend Ngozi, you've interviewed some incredible female leaders, Jacinda Ardern, Hillary Clinton, Theresa May and, and others. Moving on from that COVID discussion, we've obviously seen New Zealand do incredibly well. What do you think about Jacinda Ardern's leadership style that is working? And do you think she'd survive in Australian politics? Well, in the interview for the book, Jacinda herself uh, was sceptical that she would survive in Australian <laughs> politics, and I think she's the one who would be able to judge best. Uh, she said that she looked at my experiences and she described them as brutal, and, you know, she doubts whether she could have um, adapted to or would have wanted even to put herself forward for politics in an environment like ours. Now, we have a very combative political culture, question time really is a fair old blood sport and we've tended to have a fairly harsh media market as well. And Jacinda, I think, is... Um, you know, her leadership is a mix of her own personality traits and what she wants to bring to the fore and the environment that she's in. She's someone who's deliberately wanted to foreground kindness and empathy. And if she couldn't lead in that way, she didn't want to lead at all. She was prepared to say, look, either this is going to work or it's not. But if it's not going to work, then I'm not going to change my style to prosper in politics. So the kindness and the empathy was core to who she is and who she wanted to be as a public figure. 
But she also points to the special things about New Zealand. You know, she is the third woman to lead New Zealand. There are only two nations on earth that have had three women leaders. The other one is Iceland. And she thinks that makes a difference. She thinks the more benign media environment makes the difference too. And it's given her, I think, more space to be herself. And that's a wonderful thing to watch. Yeah. When you look back at at your time as Prime Minister, do you wish you had been more yourself? We went through that sort of um, the Julia Gillard rebrand of the of the real Julia, and I also know that you 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 tried to keep gender out of it because it, it seemed like you didn't want that to be the focus. You wanted to fight on policy, but looking back and and maybe having sort of seen the the trajectory of Jacinta Ardern or other leaders you've spoken to as part of this book, would you have played those elements of your personality and your leadership style? differently if you had your time again? Interestingly, all of the leaders we talk to, even Jacinda, uh, are conscious that female leaders do end up on a bit of a tightrope. You know, if you come on too strong, people don't like that. Uh, And we cite research in the book about how people do react against, you know, tough women leaders. They conclude that they're not likeable and, you know, very much mark them down. Yet on the other side, if you're too soft, then people will think, gee, you haven't got the spine, you haven't got the backbone, you haven't got what it takes. So every female leader has intuitively been aware of that. You know, not all of them have had their head in the gender research. I didn't have my head in the gender research when I was Prime Minister, I was busy. Uh, But I was intuitively aware of that. And I do think it's one thing that leads to a slight tightening up of your style. Um, and But it's not the only thing. You know, you're aware that every word you say matters uh, and you want to get it right. Uh, you're also often presenting yourself in quite combative environments, question time, press conferences in Parliament House. And so I think there is a tightening that comes in. And, you know, even if I put myself back in those moments through some sort of time machine, I don't think I could wish all of that away, even understand understanding more about the gender research than I do now. I do muse now as to whether I should have pointed out gendered treatment earlier. And look, I don't know whether it would make a difference or would have made a difference. You know, you can never precisely answer these questions. But when I first became Prime Minister, I thought, you know what, this kind of reaction to me being the first woman will wash its way out of the system and the treatment of me will end up being more normal over time. So there's no need to really take this on because it's only a transitory phase. you know, I was kind of dead set wrong about that. Uh, So knowing (laughs) as I do now that I was dead set wrong about that, I do wonder (laughs) what would have happened if I'd called it out earlier and had provoked some of the conversations we needed to have uh, before it got quite as crazy as it did. Yeah, it's interesting you you wonder whether you should have talked about gender earlier. Um, Certainly since the misogyny speech went viral and then post-politics, you seem to have lent into this conversation a lot more. You you clearly want to make a point here. Does that come at a bit of a price for your legacy? Because this is such a you know a big issue for you now. When you when you do speak publicly, which you you obviously choose your moments very carefully, but a lot of it now is about the gender question. Does that mean that a lot of your legacy becomes about gender? When you know the earlier Julia Gillard would have preferred it to be about policy, like 
education or climate change? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, sometimes... Uh, particularly after, immediately after I left politics in the early, you know, period, the first few years, when I started travelling internationally a lot and people would rush over to talk to me about the misogyny speech and all the rest of it, there was part of me that thought, you know what, I was Prime Minister for three years, I was Deputy Prime Minister for three years before that, I was in politics for 15 years all up, and apparently it all comes down to one speech. Is that the only thing anybody's ever going to talk to me about? Um, And so I did have a bit of that in me, but I kind of worked it through in my head and ended up recognising that you know, from the time I left politics and I sat down to write my story, I wanted to write thoughtfully about gender. I wanted to answer the question, how much of this was me? How much of this was because I was a woman? How much was because of the circumstances of the time? I got more and more intellectually intrigued with that. And, you know, I knew that it was something that I wanted to make a contribution to. And even if I hadn't decided to make a contribution to it, I'm sure that there would be many people for whom the only moment they remembered of my prime ministership was the misogyny speech. So, you know, I'm kind of at peace with that. Of course, you know, I'm proud of a number of the things we did of the NDIS, of the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, of the big education reforms we did, putting a price on carbon, plain paper packaging, and the list goes on. And I do talk about those things as well. But I recognise I'm in a unique position to make a contribution in my post-political life on this curious question of gender, and so I'm going to keep doing it. It was an extraordinary moment. I, I remember watching it, and I think for so many women there was a sense of it was almost like it was removed from you for a moment, Julia, and that I think a lot of women saw their own experiences perhaps on a less grand scale, of what you were going through. They'd experienced some kind of sexism or faced expectations that weren't fair at work or at home, and that came through in in your passion at the time. You've spoken with Jacinda Ardern, Hillary Clinton and others. I wonder if, for the work in this book, you found some sense of solidarity or comradeship, because being a woman prime minister is a pretty lonely gig. There can't be that many people you can talk to about the experience. Certainly. It was um, delightful to have this set of conversations and much to be shared. But even when I was there doing the gig, um, you know, and going to international meetings, you know, G20 meetings and things like that, the women leaders would gravitate towards each other. And often the conversation would end up around gender treatment and whether or not um, there were things that were happening to each of us, which were solely different because we were women. So, over what feels like a long period of time now, I've had that sense of solidarity and engagement with other women leaders, which is fantastic. One of the later chapters in your book, Julia, speaks to the idea of, I'm going to put it less eloquently, but women on women crime. You know, you look (laughs) at this concept of, you know, we expect other women to just support women who are doing well and are succeeding. And yet, 
you speak about the internalised misogyny of women to an extent. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we've got a chapter that we've entitled A Special Place in Hell after Madeleine Albright's um, great statement that there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women and we muse about how crowded that place might be and whether we're all destined to go down there. Uh, and in the course of that, we do debunk a few myths. You know, there are um, images around that particularly in the corporate world, the woman who gets to be the woman on the board that's an all-male board or the woman in the senior management team and she's the only one, that those women somehow pull the drawbridge up behind them and don't let any other women through. And research has shown when you delve a bit deeper, often that, that phenomenon is not explained by the actions of the woman, it's explained by a corporate culture that says, oh, gender, we've fixed that, we've got one woman job done um, and so there's not an you know an aspiration within the business to do more but we do look at what we call the politics of scarcity that we have for so long as women face circumstances where there were only a limited number of seats at the top table for us, whether that was a cabinet table or a boardroom table or a judicial bench. And so it's created this sense of competition that, you know, the women are competing against each other to seize the limited spots available rather than coming together to change the rules of the game and say, look, half the spots should be there for women. Uh, and we use the wonderful quote that uh, the politics of scarcity isn't our fault. We didn't create it, but it is our problem because it it does drive a set of behaviours where sometimes we don't reach out to each other the way that we should. And we don't have a magic answer for that. If we had it, we most certainly would have put it in the book. Uh, but I think just having that frame around the politics of scarcity and getting sucked into, you know, viewing your enemy as the woman going for the same position rather than the enemy being the system that dictates only a couple of, of spots are for women anyway, that we can all be more thoughtful about that and carry that frame in our heads and help us think through where we should really be putting our energies and attention. Julie Gillard, how do you want men to change? What what would you like men to understand that maybe they don't potentially around um, our unconscious biases, our, our own behaviours that we may not realise impact women the way that they do? What are the things you'd like to sort of make men aware of and, and see them do differently? Yeah, there are messages for men in the book and we make the point that there are you know, sexist stereotypes, unconscious bias in all of our brains, in male brains and female brains. It affects all of us. It's the environment we swim in. It's our world. So it's in us. But men can, because they tend disproportionately to hold power, make a difference to how quickly all of this gets broken down. So we give some really practical tips, like research shows that if you've got five people meeting to discuss a problem, women will only get a fair share of the talking time if four out of the five are women. If there's more than one man in that group, then the men will take a disproportionate amount of the time available. Well, if men know that, 
they can stop that. They can talk a little less. They can draw women into the conversation, say, look, we haven't heard from Jamila yet, what she got to say. They can mm-hmm. adopt consensual uh, decision-making styles because the research also shows that women get a fair share of the talking time if the group has to reach a decision by consensus. That's a simple thing. Another simple thing, and our women leaders talk about it, even when they were serving at high levels, they would go to meetings and they'd put forward an idea and no one would react. And then a man would put forward the same idea a little later in the discussion and everybody would go, that's genius. Well, when that happens, you know, a man can take on the responsibility of saying, oh, I actually think Jamila raised that idea first, so why don't we go back to her (laughs) to hear more about it? Um, You know, men running businesses can change corporate cultures so that they value diversity and outcomes, not presenteeism, that the next person to get a big promotion isn't the man who reminds the powerful corporate leader of himself when he was younger, that there's a bigger and more rigorous frame brought to bear about who should get promotions next. Men can make a real difference to women's careers by leaning into domestic work because a big thing holding women back is that women disproportionately take on work at home and caring work for others. You know, all of these things brought together, um, they're the sort of stuff everybody can do and everybody can think about, but they do add up to profound change. Julia, I really want to just sit here and hear you lecture Tom a little bit more. I'm wondering how much time you've got on your hands. Um, I could also go and get my partner and my son if we wanted to broaden the community of male listeners uh, to these excellent points. But I do want to ask a more serious question, which is around... Uh, the impact the pandemic is having in Australia when it comes to the economy. We know that more women are losing their jobs and a lot of those women are then no longer looking for work anymore. So they're no longer showing up in the unemployment figures because they're not seeking to participate in work. Do you think COVID has the prospect of setting back progress for gender equality? I think it does have that potential. I think that from the economic changes that you're talking about, this is a recession where the job losses are disproportionately women's jobs. And it's been a long time since we've had a recession in Australia, but uh, earlier waves of economic change and economic downturn have tended to be around male jobs, particularly uh, the loss of the manufacturing sector uh, in Australia as a major employer. So this is going to require new skills and new ways of thinking thinking to address. I also think that this has the potential to disproportionately impact on women because many organisations may well conclude to themselves, gee, all that work we were doing on diversity, you know, that was kind of good, but it's not made for times like these. You know, it's a luxury and we'll get back to that work sometime in the future, but we're not going to do it now. And I'm already seeing some troubling signs about, you know, who's getting made um, uh, redundant when businesses are cutting back uh, and that worries me a great deal. Having said that, I think if we can 
get the drive for gender equality right at this time, there are some huge new prospects for change too. The fact is we are doing things now virtually that people said couldn't be done virtually. A friend of mine works at a very senior level in banking in London and forever. Uh, she has asked for more flexible and virtual working styles only to be told that some of the big financial deals they do cannot be done other than in person. And guess what? They've been doing them virtually now for months. So, you know, that does mean we could catalyse this time of change into more flexible working styles that would ultimately be better for women's careers and for work and family balance for everyone. Not in every job. Not every job can be done virtually, but for those jobs that can. So I think how good or how bad this is, whether we maximise the positive or we're swept away by the negative, is in some senses still to play for as we come through this period, which is why it's really important to be having these conversations now. And Julie Gillard, just lastly, you can implore people to sort of push for gender equality because it's the right thing to do to appeal to their, their sense of morality. But if female leadership styles have really important values to offer, I imagine having more women in leadership is going to make the world a better place. Is that your view? And do you think that's a good way to try and change people's minds to focus on those tangible benefits of more female leadership rather than trying to, you know, draw on people's sense of fairness and morality? For me, the moral argument matters and we should keep restating it. You know, every human being has the uh, right to realise their full potential and not to hit artificial barriers because of gender or indeed any other characteristic, uh, you know, uh, race, uh, their status as a potentially a person with a disability, uh, their sexuality, their gender identity. None of these things should lead to people being um artificially held back. So the moral argument is important. But I think that there are a series of practical arguments too. I mean, I fundamentally believe that merit is equally distributed between the sexes. And so if we look at our world and we aren't seeing around half men, half female leaders, that must mean that there are women of merit who didn't get to come through. And why in this, you know, fractious, contested age, wouldn't we want the best people leading us? Uh, there's plenty of research which shows that uh, more diverse teams make better decisions because they consider more perspectives as they come to an accord about what to do next. As we come out of this crisis into whatever that uh, new normal is going to be, to use the terminology, why wouldn't we want the broadest set of perspectives at the table so we get it right uh, for everyone uh, rather than just for people who have got one set of experiences in this world. I am very strongly convinced that a gender equal world will be better for everyone, for women and for men, because it will give people more choices, more abilities to, you know, chart their own course rather than feeling like some predetermined path or set of reactions is the way that they have to be. Julia Gillard, thank you so much for being with us here on The Briefing. We've really enjoyed your company. Thank you. Great to be with you. 
So there you go, Julia Gillard, the full uncut interview. Um, She's pretty open for someone who used to be so careful. Yeah, I think that's true. Yet at the same time, you can still sense that former politician trick, you know, where more than occasionally she didn't answer our question. But you did well, Tom. You pushed her. You pushed her. Oh, well, you know, if she was still the Prime Minister, I would have pushed a lot, lot harder. But I think... She's at a different place in her journey now where there's just a lot to learn from her experience and it's best to just try and get her to speak openly and and reflect. And she did that to some extent, talking about how she would have done some things differently. So she's giving some ground, reflecting, and, and I guess we're learning a lot from the experience of someone who was in a very unique position. I'm also just really impressed that she's gone off with her life. She's doing other things. She's being an absolute rock star, hanging out with rock stars like Rihanna. She's clearly really enjoying the next phase of her career. And all the best to her. Yeah, living her best life. All right, that's it for the special weekend episode of The Briefing. We'll catch you Monday. A Podcast One production.